Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Apologies for the scratchy voice. COVID is the villain. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, will you consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Helen Lackner. A Yemen expert, Helen also works as a freelance rural development consultant with a particular interest in water issues, among other environmental problems. Saki Books has published the paperback edition with new material of her Yemen in Crisis, now subtitled Devastating Conflict, Fragile Hope. It is a seminal study of the war, what lies behind it, and what can happen for it to end. In July last year, Routledge published her latest book, Yemen, Poverty and Conflict. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, and um, it's a very appropriate date on which to be holding it. Well, we're going to talk about Yemen. Yemen's been rather off the radar for some time. We're going to work to put it back on the radar. Uh, The current situation, since the end of the six-month truce last October, there's been no renewal of Saudi Emirati airstrikes, though UN and other efforts to extend the truce have failed. What's the picture on the ground right now, Helen? Yeah, uh, yesterday, 26th of September, was the annual anniversary of the Yemeni revolution, which was the instauration of the Republic. And that is quite an important date. And it's worth mentioning it at this point in history, simply because the Houthis are busy trying to replace it by their own anniversary, which is the 21st of September. And most significantly, in terms of the current situation, what we have to note is that last uh, on the night of Monday to Tuesday, I'm not sure exactly at what time, was the first significant attack across the Saudi border from the Houthis, which reached a camp, a military camp of Bahrainis, and at least two Bahrainis were killed, and apparently at the level of information I have at this stage, more than 20 were wounded. So this is a really, you know, it it could be an escalation. It could also be very much a warning by the Houthis who up to now, up to the time of talking, have not claimed this their responsibility for this. Uh, on the other hand, I can't think who else would be lobbying uh, missiles and drones across the Saudi border from Yemen and into uh, a military camp. So... You know, this is an important event, or it could be an important event. I hate to make long-term predictions, but it's very certainly uh, meaning it it certainly is intended to send a message to the Saudis. And, you know, I suspect the message might be that um, they want more uh, compromises from the Saudis, which the Saudis have done a lot of them. But I think we'll come to that later. I think generally in terms of the overall situation, what there has been in the last 12 months, i.e. since the truce expired on 2nd of October last year, has been an amount of low-level fighting on all the usual fronts, um, occasionally flaring up into something vaguely more serious. But what it does mean is there have not been, until last night, any cross-border serious attacks from either side. 
and um, nor have there been any major offensives within the within the country. Another general point, really, is that you know the main political developments in the last twelve months since the truce expired have been in the internationally recognized government areas. And they have mainly focused on the problems that are arising within the Presidential Leadership Council, of which four members are supporters of, supported by the Emiratis, and the other four are more or less supported by the Saudis. Um, so I think the only other point I would make as a very general point at this stage is that as is customary. The president has been present at the UN General Assembly and made a speech. Uh, what's, in my view, uh, less customary is that he went accompanied by the head of the Southern Transitional Council alone. Not None of the other members of the presidential leadership councils went. And I think that was a very serious tactical error because it gives him, you know, it gives the STC man a very prominent position. Whereas, you know, if he'd gone with two or three other members of the PLC, it would have looked less important. So I think I'll leave that for now and maybe we can move on to to more details as you wish. Yeah, well, indeed, Helen. Uh, I'm interested, though, in, in this uh, attack, this cross-border attack, because, as you say, uh, since the um, the ceasefire, low-level fighting, the Saudis are very keen to get out of Yemen. We know that MBS is. This kind of ups the ante, potentially. But what, what are the main issues being addressed in the Houthi-Saudi negotiations, which have now been taking place, well, fairly openly for close to a year? What, what are they, you know, contesting and trying to sort out between the two of them? Well, there's been a lot of a lot of details of what a potential Saudi-Houthi agreement would be. And I'll go into some of them uh, in a moment. But I think the, the first thing to, to really emphasize, and we may emphasize this again, is that this is a Saudi-Houthi uh, set of discussions. It does not involve anyone else. In other words, everyone else, the internationally recognized government, um, you know, the UN and everyone else are basically marginalized and left on the side and watching it. Uh, the Omanis are very active as mediators, so they are probably better informed than anyone else and they probably play a certain role. But basically, these discussions are taking place between the Saudis and the Houthis alone. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's important to remember that the entire Yemeni crisis involves a lot of other parties. So I think the main things they've been talking about are the obvious one, having a ceasefire and ending all the fighting. Uh, the Houthis are demanding prior to any signature or whatever that all foreign troops should leave Yemen. But, you know, the only foreign troops in Yemen, there are a few Saudis in, in Aden and in Al-Mahra and in a few other places, but most of the foreign troops are still Emirati, as well as a few Americans, uh, whether, you know, they could, uh, all, of, all of these people in the area not controlled by the Houthis. Uh, that's one element which I think, you know, is not a major issue. There's been a lot of talk about the size of the buffer zone that is required for by the Saudis of a demilitarized zone on the Saudi-Houthi border. But that is, you know, that is new, that, that 
that was part of the border agreement signed by the Yemen government and the Saudi government in 2000. So this is really more a case of implementing something that's already been agreed rather than actually making a new agreement. The Houthis are asking for a formal end to the blockade. Again, this is at this point very much more of a bureaucratic point because effectively the blockade on the Hodeida ports has ended. You know, the Saudis have stopped their stopped controlling the ships and and diverting them and holding them for long periods of time. And ships are entering the uh, Hodeida port, you know, in large numbers, particularly since um, the Houthis have, are imposing serious difficulties on anything that comes via Aden, by trucks. Uh, they're, they're demanding that the new destinations for Sanra Airport, um, which is something that is not entirely under the control of the Saudis. The reasons most of the new proposed destinations have not happened is because the countries to which these flights would take place are not happy about the security uh, status of the airport, of Sanaa Airport. And the big, big talk that everybody's gone on about at great length is the payment of the salaries. You know, basically, most uh, government staff salaries, other than security, have not been paid more than very intermittently since September 2016. We're talking about a long time now. People are paid very occasionally small amounts of money. So, you know, most teachers, health staff, you know, bureaucrats in the civil service, you know, have basically not been paid. And that goes, it's a bit less of a problem in the in the internationally recognized government areas, but it's still a problem there. And it's certainly a very major problem in the Houthi-controlled areas. But it's important... I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but, but isn't it the case that the Houthis want the Saudis to pay military salaries as well? Yes, but that's been agreed. The issue is, where is the money going to come from? Now, the Saudis have kind of agreed to pay a lot of things, but um, the Houthis insist that the, this should be paid out of the revenues from the export of Yemeni oil. Now, it's worth remembering that they've put an end and stopped the export of Yemeni oil last November when they attacked the two oil export ports in this in you know on the southern coast. So basically what they want is that they don't want to be reliant on the unpredictability of Saudi payments, I think is the issue. But there's two points that really need to be made here. One is that if they wanted to, the Saudi, the, sorry, the Houthis have the money to pay these salaries. It's not that they don't actually need the money from outside. You know, with the amount of taxation and customs duties, and now the increased duties they're getting through the to Hodeida port, and everything else, they can afford to pay these salaries. So it's really a political discussion. They, you know, they want this contribution from the coalition, and the other two, you know, another. Another major issue that is under discussion or which is certainly uh, preventing any solution is the role of the 
needs of the Saudi, both in terms of repayments, i.e. The, the Houthis are talking about reparations, whereas the Saudis talk about financing development investments and rep and reconstruction, etc., through an international conference or through some mechanism or other, but they don't want these things called reparations. And what I believe to be the major stumbling block to the agree to an agreement between them is the issue of the status under which the Saudis would be signing. As far as the Houthis are concerned, the Saudis must sign as participants. As far as the Saudis are concerned, they want to sign as mediators. This is a very important point because if they sign as mediators, they are mediators and they don't have responsibility for you know, all the war crimes and other activities that have happened in the last six or seven years. If they sign as participants, they are then liable to international judicial attacks or, or sorry, judicial cases on these issues. So, the so question... I think, sorry, one more issue that I forgot, yeah. which yeah. is really important of the topics they're discussing, is the issue of the reunification of the Central Bank of Yemen. I won't go into details on that, but as we know, it's divided into the Sama one and the Aden one, and they need to be brought back together to create a vaguely reasonable uh, unified currency and basically to run all the activities that a bank will do ask a question. I can have a sip. Well, okay. Uh, what I wanted to ask you was, we know that Mohammed bin Salman wants out of the war very badly, but are the Houthis still demanding too high a price? I mean, you've made that point about reparations and 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 the issue, various other issues. MBS, how badly does he want out? So, how much is he prepared to give the Houthis? Well, if you look at what's happened in the last six months or, or year, what you see is a succession of compromises and acceptance by the Saudis of what has been demanded by the Houthis. But I think the fun and, and you know, if we look, for example, this five day official visit that was carried out by a Houthi delegation into Riyadh last week, you know, is a major event. But as you say, the, the the main recent development has been this five-day visit by a senior Houthi delegation to Riyadh. Um, yeah. So, so I should ask you then, what is the significance of that? Yeah, well, the significance of, of it, you know, number one is this official recognition of the Houthis as, you know, as the main interlocutors. It also confirms that, um, you know, the marginalization of everyone else, you know, during that five day visit, uh, the president Al-Alimi was came through Riyadh for a day or two on his way from Aden to New York. And as far as I haven't seen any suggestion that he was in any way involved or consulted on anything to do with these conversations between the Houthis and the Saudis. So, you know, it is, I mean, this visit is a major success and, and uh, you know, and many people and various announcements were made that an agreement would be taking place, which would have given the Houthis the opportunity of announcing it in public last Thursday on the 21st, when they had their major celebration for their anniversary of when they took over summer. And this did not happen. So I, you know, in a sense, my question was why, you know, what went wrong? 
in those conversations because, you know, the agreement was not reached and all the statements that had been made simply said there were productive discussions and we're making good progress or words to that effect. And I think, you know, this raises a fundamental question. You asked, you know, are the Houthis asking for too much? Well, the Houthis, whenever they get something, they ask for more. And, you know, the other thing that happened, and it's closely related to what we're talking about, on Thursday, they had a massive military parade in Sanaa, which included, you know, all kinds of rockets and, and drones and any amounts of stuff, which I cannot, you know, I'm no specialist and I don't understand, but I suspect military people are looking at them carefully. It's a, I didn't watch all of this parade. It went on for two hours and 56 minutes, according to the website I was watching. I may have watched well over an hour of it. it they had more than 20,000 men marching in that event. And this is not in something you organize in two days flat. I mean, clearly they'd been planning and organizing this for months. And so, you know, the question is, they were just coming back from their main uh, visit, official visit to Riyadh, and they hold this massive demonstration of force. And, you know, again, had an agreement been signed, what would have happened to this um, to this parade? Would it have actually happened? So, you, you know, you have... The impression is, and there's a, a lot of people have suspected it for some time, that the Houthis do not want an agreement. So however much the Saudis compromise, they'll never compromise enough because the, the for the Houthis, the rationale of their control is an ongoing permanent state of warfare. And so... I mean, I feel hesitant to, to say that that is really what is going on. But certainly there's a lot of evidence to suggest that whatever compromises are made, the Houthis are not like, are, are just going to find more to ask for. I must admit at this point, we've got to a stage where I really find it difficult to imagine what more they can ask for. <laughs> I mean, they may well um, try and find something. Uh, and to me, you know, both the parade coming the day or two days after the mission had returned from, from, from Riyadh and what's happened, you know, on Monday night, Tuesday morning, whenever of this, this first attack in, you know, in basically 18 months across the border, you know, does raise very fundamental questions as to the potential of an actual agreement. Mm. So I'm not answering the question, but I... No, I, but you, you, you raise a very interesting point that the Houthis themselves may not be interested in, in a lasting peace. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Yemen expert, Helen Lackner. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Let me ask you, uh, we, we've talked about this over the years, and, and, and I know you've written about it as well, and it's a constant theme, and that is the Saudis have taken pretty much all of lack, and, and rightly so, uh, for their conduct of the war, but the Emiratis have escaped pretty lightly. And the Emiratis have a case to answer, don't they? 
They absolutely do. And, you know, they they have, um, I mean, aside from their military involvement, and one's always talking, one was always talking about the Saudi-led airstrikes. Uh, but, I mean, in the there were probably Emirati, well, certainly at the beginning there were Emirati uh, aircraft involved, but they've also been involved militarily on the ground, and you know the main UAE activity in in recent months or even for quite some time has been to basically undermine Yemen as a single state. So not only do they support you know factions of the southern separatists, they also support some other factions which are not separatists, but their main activity has been to basically undermine the, vi the viability of, uh, of this Yemeni state. Um, and that's, you know, very important because one of the main reasons the Houthis are as successful as they are and are as able of, to say and do what they are saying and doing is that the, uh, the, they are in facing an internationally recognized government, which is divided and very, very weak. You know, if they were under serious threat militarily from the internationally recognized government, they might be forced to compromise. But at the moment, they, there is no threat coming coming from that direction. You know, most of the activities of the internationally recognized government and the, you know, the, the presidential leadership council that supposedly runs it are is internal squabbling and internal there hasn't been any internal actual fighting this year but it's been very very close more than once so you know in addition to that i mean the uae are actively you know running uh some they're they're controlling the the gas export facility which admittedly has stopped functioning even before they turned up immediately after the war started you know they control the the Rian, uh, airport in in mukalla and you know they have very considerable influence i mean i think one reason the head of the stc went to new york you know is because the uae supported them and as far as i could tell from the picture he was probably in a private uae aircraft um, traveling so although I think we've seen in, in other contexts the, the rivalry and the increased competition between Saudi Arabia and the UAE increasing, it's still remaining most obvious and most dangerous, I would say, in Yemen, because that is where it is undermining the, the possibility of finding a solution. You know, if you're going to find a solution that involves compromises on all sides, you have basically to weaken the Houthis. And the Emirati interventions at the moment in Yemen are doing exactly the opposite. They are strengthening the Houthis. Mm. Well, look, given that is the case, and again, another area that you write about for us on, on the Arab Digest newsletter, humanitarian issues. And and climate change, you know, it, it would seem to me that Yemen, on top of the war, has sustained significant damage from climate change and, and the humanitarian issues that emerge from that. Can you can you give us a little bit of a background on that situation? Yes, I think climate, you know, climate issues and particularly water, I think we did that dealt with this fairly recently, but water is the primary uh, climate issue that that is that needs to be addressed in Yemen. But generally, you know, the climate situation is worsening uh, economic conditions. The amount of cultivable land is dropping by about three to five percent per year because of desertification. This year, we haven't had any major floods, though we had some in the last few years. Instead, we've had a major drought, which also affects, you know, living people's living conditions. So generally, you know, the, the climate 
situation. I think we we really ought to give that a whole a whole podcast to itself, maybe in the region. But um, but that you know that is playing a very significant role in worsening living conditions for the population, and the important relevant uh, factor in our when we're talking about politics is the fa- is that neither the Houthis nor any factions in the IRG are taking these issues seriously, and therefore are not taking any of the mitigating or compensatory m- measures which need to be taken if the issue is going to be addressed. In any long term. And that refers both to, you know, water management and water supply, uh, issues like rising sea levels, you know, issues like preparing for droughts and floods, uh, both technically and, and economically, etc. And very briefly, to you know, we are now at the end of September, i.e. we are at the end of the third quarter of 2023. And the humanitarian, the UN's humanitarian response plan has now been financed at exactly 32.1% as of uh, 25th of September. So not even a third. Not Not even even a third third when we're three quarters of the year through. Well, that brings me to the next question then, Alan, which is living conditions for Yemenis continuing to worsen. What are the main factors behind this and how do they differ in Houthi and IRG controlled areas. And I'll under- start with the last bit. I mean, the difference between the Houthi and IRG controlled areas is that in the Houthi area, things are very carefully controlled by the Houthi and their organizations. And so, particularly with respect to humanitarian aid, but also with respect to other to economic activities, you know, they are strengthening their supporters and they are weakening everybody else. So they are trying, they're taking over enterprises by basically, you know, making sure that their own enterprises uh, operate more successfully. They are, for example, controlling prices, which sounds like a great idea. You know, your price of wheat is at, or rice or whatever is going to be controlled. But what happens is that they control it at a level below what is economically viable for the importers or the traders, and then they take over the companies and then they put the prices up again. So, you know, it's a process of basically taking over the the non-Houthi elements of the economy. I think generally, you know, the, the factors we just talked about of, of the climatic worsening conditions, of reduced agricultural production, these changes in the economy, the fact that there is no serious economic development plan or implementation or management, the constant fighting, the political fighting, all these things are, you know, worsening people's living conditions. And, you know, that's making the... and and. You know, the, the big difference is that in the IRG controlled areas, thing, things are more disorganized and more fragmented. But I think everywhere you can say that it's the people who are suffering and um, leaders, so-called, who are basically managing to benefit from things. Mm-hmm. So here we are in the situation where, as you say, the people are suffering, the leaders, be they the Houthi or the IRG, the the outside players what is the future for yemen do we look at you mentioned about how the emiratis have effectively undercut any attempt to create a viable state it seems to me they want to separate out south yemen that's useful to them is that the way forward 
people say, okay, that's the reality now, or is there some sort of loose federal state? What can Yemen look forward to? Ideally, should things improve, I think Yemen could look forward to a federal state with a number of regions, uh, the number being open to discussion and negotiations, and ideally to you know such decisions being made on the basic of presence of natural resources population density skills trade etc you know put economic fun economic and social criteria that would be a, a positive long-term ending um i think the redivision of yemen on the basis of the 1990 borders if it happens, it will be a purely temporary thing because there will then very promptly be um, internal fighting, particularly in the former PDRY area. Uh, when one says that the STC, you know, claim to control everything, but they are merely one faction and other groups, both throughout that part area and in particularly in, in the strong governorates of Hadramut and, and the less strong but strategic governorate of Al-Mahra, will not be op- willing to operate under STC management or administration. So you would have those divisions, you would have other divisions in what was the, the in, in the other part of Yemen, in so far as already as we talked with the IRG, is in control of two major areas of that area, which is the, the Mareb area where there is oil production and the southwest area, which which borders the Bab al-Mandab and therefore which controls the Bab al-Mandab and therefore is of great strategic interest. And you have the area in between of Thai's governorate and, and others that are, you know, to some extent uh, constantly contested by different groups. So you don't, you know, you the, the area that's under full Houthi control might expand a little bit, but I don't see it expanding to take over the whole of what was the what was the YAR pre-1990. So I think, you know, th- th- there's an enormous job left for negotiations and the principle of the, I think, the Saudi vision of the Saudi Houthi discussions is that once they've done their deal with the Houthis, there will be intra-Yemeni negotiations, which would be mediated and which would bring which would bring back the UN into it. And they've said it explicitly. You know, long-term solution would be one that is mediated by the UN. But that will not by any means be an easy thing to do and an easy task, particularly as long as you have both internal and external agents that are undermining any process of reconstruction or of of not of when you say reconstruction, one tends to think of, you know, contracts and building and, and roads and built and infrastructure. I'm thinking, you know, you're also talking about the principle of social and economic and political reconstruction into a, a viable entity. Uh, it's going to take a long time. If it happens, it's a it's a long, long, long road, and as ever, the Yemeni people pay the price for it. Helen, yeah. thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, and uh, hopefully, this will help clarify some points to some of the people. I mean, I've seen so much stuff in the last few months of the war is over and it's all settled that I've, which you know, obviously, people have looking at other crises of which there are plenty. So hopefully enough people will listen to this and uh, find it useful and it will help them understand the situation and current prospects for the next few months. And thank you for asking me. Take care.
You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Yemen expert Helen Lackner. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. You may have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We're a truly independent source for analysis and commentary in the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Helen. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 180 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources. (music) 